Have you ever noticed that when you spend any time, say, around a playground at an elementary school, you hear the chatter and the excitement, you know, little screams and laughter and talking and, and everything better for it, just this, just this din of, uh, of hopefully happiness um, as kids celebrate in their recess. I know that uh, recess was... Um, my favorite. Uh, but we always, uh, I spent all my recess playing sports. And, and in our elementary school, uh, they just made sure that uh, you had access to a backstop. So it was either kickball or uh, baseball, depending on uh, time of the season, and then basketball, and then out, out would be football, and even a little bit of soccer, even back in my day. And so in the in the sports realm or circle of the playground, uh, you'd hear the same chatter, but uh, it would, you know, again, it would be this ongoing, you know, uh, chatter that would go back and forth. But there is three words that could pierce through that chatter and even within the field itself, make the chatter stop. To hear a child all of a sudden go, that's not fair. And it would, it would stop right there because fairness, especially on a playground, especially during a game, it has to be fair. That's what we were taught. It has to be fair. It is, it is our, uh, I guess, right as children on a playground that our sports uh, and anything that was happening there would be fair. That's not fair. Fairness is something that is inbred in us. It's built into us. It's, it's hopefully what we strive for, that things could be uh, based upon. And uh, when I think of even, uh, say, the economy of this world, it's supposed to be based on fairness. The governance of this world is supposed to be based on fairness. So in Matthew 19, 27, when Peter uh, says, to Jesus, look, we have followed, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, he's questioning Jesus on the fairness of this. We've left everything and followed you. What is we will get out of it? Because this doesn't seem fair that we would leave everything. There has to be a reward. And I, I, I fully believe that everybody was thinking it. It's just that, of course, Peter was the one to ask it out loud. Sacrifice has to have a payoff. It's the law. Sacrifice now, reward later. And of course, in their minds, this would apply to this divine reward that Jesus keeps pointing out, this kingdom that is to come that he keeps pointing out and would even pray for. And it's a principle that we've seen time and time again when Jesus begins to answer this. But he just says it out front, usually in some places. A couple verses later in verse 30, he just says, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And that's what happens when you take this kingdom of this world's economy and try to apply it to the kingdom of heaven, the rules of the kingdom of heaven. Here, if you're first, you're first, and that's fair. If you're last, and you're, you're last, and that is fair. That's just the way that it is. But in the kingdom, 
Those who are first, or many, he said, that will be first will be last, and the last will be first. So first in this kingdom may be last in the other, and vice versa. As we looked at last week, you know, the principles of the kingdom of heaven are in place. They're quiet, they're hidden, they're behind. The, the pushers don't get it done uh, in, in the kingdom of heaven. The pushers get it done here. And if you think about it, uh, the pushers go forward. They, they, you know, they are helped because they help themselves and, and, and they go forward. But Jesus says, no, not so in the kingdom of heaven. The rules, the governance, and even the economy may be different. In John 8, 23, he said to them, you're from below and I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. It was just another way to put it. The kingdom of heaven in this world, uh, another way to put it, a, a good Adventist way to put it, if you will, would be the kingdom of heaven is in this world, but it is not of it. I remember that Jesus had a disciple tell him that he would follow him anywhere, and Jesus told him this. He said, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Oh, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And Lord, you know, we have no friend like you. So we shouldn't be surprised when it comes to numbers. I've already mentioned economy a couple of times. So when it comes to numbers, when it comes to the kingdom's math, the kingdom's economy, that it would be fundamentally opposed to the kingdom of this world as well. In Luke, I'll, I'll jump to Luke. Matthew tells this parable also. But in Luke, he says, which one of you having, Luke 15, verse four, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. One is as much a concern as 99. You have 99, that is your whole business, and one is as much a concern, so much so that you would go and leave the 99 behind and go find him. Well, in the kingdom, with that shepherd, with the good shepherd, with that king, he's saying yes. Now, can you imagine running a business in the kingdom of the world that way? If you took less than 1%, I mean, uh, if you took 99% of your resources, you take 99% of your resources and you risk them into less than 1% of your growth, you're not gonna have your business very long. One plus one plus one, in this kingdom that equals three, but in the kingdom of heaven, one plus one plus one equals one. The Father, the Son, and us can all be one, thanks to Jesus. Jesus said, you and me, and me and you, and I and them, and may we all be one. Even the math is fundamentally opposed to the kingdom of this world. The greatest will often be last. The messianic prophecy that said where Jesus would be born, Matthew 2, 6, it says, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem, the least, it is the tiniest of villages. 
If you go to Bethlehem today and you go to the church of the nativity, the church that sits on top of this supposed spot where the manger uh, supposedly laid, there is a courtyard outside that church. The church is huge, by the way, but there is a courtyard outside that church that's about the size of our sanctuary and one of our parking lots. It's about that big. I've been told by archaeologists that the actual village of Bethlehem is less than one-fifth the size of that courtyard out there waiting. It was tiny, tiny, tiny. The smallest produces the greatest. Not King David, but yes, it is the home of King David, but King Jesus laid in a manger. The tiniest produced the greatest the greatest of Israel's physical kings and the greatest of of the kingdoms, our king of kings, if you will. Deuteronomy 7, 7, it's 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 a principle that has never, ever changed. God was this way back in the, in the Old Testament times as he is today. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, it wasn't because you were more numerous than any other people. The Lord set his heart on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, and what we were looking at and, and the lenses that we're looking through will certainly keep us or help us, I, I, I would say, hear what we're supposed to hear in today's parable. Remember where we've been, that the outside voice are the parables. The language of the kingdom is the language of the parables. It's designed for people, uh, the parable is designed for people to have a comparison that they can put their hands on, but yet be taught about the kingdom of heaven. And it was supposed to be designed for those who right now are only citizens of the kingdom of the world. It falls upon us, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, to show them what it could be like, what it is like. And and the voice that we use is that outside voice. We speak in parables as Jesus did. We teach in parables as Jesus did. Why? Because we are supposed to have the same feelings for those outside that Jesus had. His desire is for them to understand our desire should be for them to understand also. So today's parable was found in Matthew 20, verse one. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. So the ancient day for a, for a vineyard, for a farm, uh, a, a day's a day, uh, uh, around, this would all be around uh, harvest time, probably it's around harvest time, but it would be a 12-hour day. It would begin uh, at about sunrise and it would go till about sunset. So the very first shift started at around 6 a.m., The daily wage, a denarius. They agreed on a denarius. You may see that word in your other translations. And a denarius is not a coin or a denomination of coin or bill. It is the day's wage. It is whatever you give for the day. And that's established completely by the vineyard owner. He has offered them a day's wage because they are about to work for him for a day. So at 6 a.m., he sends these workers in the field. 
to work an entire day, the 12-hour shift, and they've agreed to a day's wage. In verse 3, he says he goes out about 9 o'clock, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. So now it's the second shift, if you will. And they're three hours short of a whole day. They're starting at nine o'clock. And notice, he doesn't agree to them with the day's wage. And I believe he, he does this on purpose. He says, and I will pay you whatever is right. Again, who establishes right? The owner establishes what is right. So I imagine what they're expecting when they go out there. They're, they're expecting not to be paid for a full day because they didn't start until three hours in to that day. Verse five says he went out again about noon. Three o'clock, he did the same. So at noon, he does it, and at three, he does it. Three more hours gone, three more hours gone. He's now up to the third shift. Now half of the shift is gone. Half of the day is gone. These guys are going out there only going to do half the work. And then about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. It is the 11th hour. There is only one more day, uh, one more hour left in the entire day. The day ends in one hour. What I, what I love about this is because he goes and he sees them and, and they're there and they weren't there before. They weren't there for the, uh, for the entire 11 hours before. And he says, what are you doing here? And, he, and they say, because no one has hired us. You know, he doesn't lecture them and say, well, you know, I've been here three times today and haven't seen you before now. I would have hired you because now I'm going to. I'll hire you right now. I'll send you into the vineyard. I love that. What, it, what, what the parable is trying to get across to you is that these guys aren't uh, your most diligent workers. Let's put it that way. And, and, and from someone who's inherently lazy, yes, I will blame somebody who will not hire me because I'm lazy for my laziness any day of the week. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. They're only going to work one hour. And so he, they stand along the workers that have worked 12, that have worked nine, that have worked six. And in verse eight, it says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. Day over, it's time to pay. Law says to, <clears throat> by the way, the, the, uh, the landowner is very law-abiding and law-obedient. Deuteronomy 24, verse 14 says, you shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether other Israelites or aliens who reside in the land of one, in one of your towns. You shall pay them their wages daily before sunset because they are poor and their livelihood depends on them. Otherwise, they might cry out to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. I love that we, even the law, even the letter, which so often falls completely short of the spirit of the law. I love when the, the letter of the law will at least hold somebody to something, to, to some sort of uh, decency. Notice, you're to pay them, and you're to do it even before sunset. So they have time to buy some food on their way home so that they can eat and feed their families. And note what he says. Their livelihood depends on that. 
And if they cry out to the Lord against you, then you are going to incur guilt. Remember what Jesus said, you pick on one of my lambs. So, so he says to begin with the last ones, the one hour. And remember he agreed to pay whatever is right. As a matter of fact, with the last ones, he didn't even mention what he was gonna pay them. He just said, you also go into the vineyard. And guess what? Those hired at five o'clock, each of them received the usual daily wage. Whatever is right? No, he didn't pay them whatever was right. He paid them the usual daily wage. Jesus doesn't even bother with telling us about the other shifts because we assume if he paid the one hour worker the daily wage, he certainly was gonna pay the, the three, the six, and the nines the same daily wage. And he skips immediately to the only ones that agreed on a particular amount, the only ones that entered into a contract, if you will. Verse 10 says, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. They thought they would receive more. Why? Because it's fair. They looked at the one hour and all the others getting the wage that they worked more for and the cry comes out in the playground of the kingdom of the world and in the economy of the kingdom of the world and they say, that's not fair. And immediately they compare themselves to the other guys. They think that they're worth more simply because they worked at least three more hours. In some cases, they worked more than 10 hours more. And they say, the last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us to, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching of the heat. They immediately compare themselves to the other workers. The world actually says equal pay, equal work, and they say so. You're paying us the same as you're paying those lazy, good-for-nothings. They weren't anywhere near the bus stop, the truck stop, uh, when we were there. It's not fair. You made them equal to us. Those guys were lazy. We should get more. And the vineyard owner's response to them is very interesting. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? It's an interesting word, the word that he decides to use here for friend. It's only used three times in all the New Testament, and they're all uh, used, uh, uh, they're, they're twice used Actually, well, they're twice used in parables in Jesus' voice, and then there's one in an actual narrative that Jesus uses it. Uh, he doesn't use phelos or phile uh, uh, that you would be brother or sister. It may not have the affection of that, but it has respect. It's a respect term, if you will. It's, a, it's, it's respect at the least. And I think that that's very interesting is that they are grumbling and telling him that they're not fair. And as the landowner, as the vineyard owner, he could have put his foot down. He could have chewed him out. He could have sent them away with nothing. But he didn't. He says, friend, didn't I give you what we agreed on? Isn't this what we agreed on? Did I cheat you? Now, we don't hear their answer, but it's assumed that he, at least through their anger, they agreed even through their anger, they agreed with him. He says, okay, 
So he says in verse 14, then take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last the same as I give you. Go, I choose, it's mine. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? And those three words in, that, in, in verse 15, am I not allowed? It's his. The vineyard owner belongs to him. The wages belong to him. The fruits of the vineyard all belong to him. He's decided that this is his economy, that this is his government. His workers will get the same no matter when they applied for the job, no matter when they were sent into the vineyard. This is what he says. It is mine. Am I not allowed? He's very good. Uh, he's a very good teacher too, this vineyard owner. He's a rabbi. He teaches by the rabbinic method. He teaches by asking a question and not giving them the answer. He wants them to answer him. And of course the answer is, of course you're allowed. See, and I hope for us now that we're becoming accustomed to hearing Jesus use this outside voice, to hear the voice of the kingdom speak to people who may not even understand the principles of the kingdom. Those of us who claim to, and especially those who are on the outside. The parables provide the language that the kingdom speaks, this outside voice. And I hope that we're becoming fluent in it. And as we allow ourselves to become fluent in it, then we also allow ourselves to come to the conclusions that the parable is saying we should come to. And the, and the conclusions are already, always about who he is and what he is like and what the kingdom is like and what it's like to be a citizen of the kingdom and how, uh, how we uh, reflect his love for him and for each other and especially in the way that we treat each other. And one of the ways to recognize what he's saying is that to come to the conclusion that he at least is allowed to do what he wants, especially with that which is his. And if he wants to give to the whosoevers, if he wants to give to the one hours, even the half hour, even the 15 minutes, that's up to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever, if he wants to give to the whoever's, not the first ones that the message was given to, uh, maybe the last ones and the last came last, but in the kingdom that they're first, whosoever. I studied uh, about three years, uh, it was before the pandemic, so it was about four years ago, almost five years ago. We studied the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew, and we took a look at, at a lot of these parables that we're going through now. One of the tough studies that we did in talking about how the kingdom of heaven operates, about its economy, about its gubernatorial rule, how, how it's governed and, and, and what is done by the king, the good shepherd, and how he does this. One of the tough studies that we did uh, in that is that we have a habit as people of the word, and, and don't get me wrong, we should be people of the word. We are people of the book, of the entire book, of the testament that came before and of the testament that we, that we have now, both the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures. 
I told you before, I have a little trouble saying old and new because of what it implies. So, so that which came before and that which we have now, the former testament, if you will, the one that came first and the, the testament that we have now. But the habit that we have when we go back to the former testament is that we usually go back there when we want to, when it's convenient, because we can find language in the former testament that we don't find in the New Testament. As I said, as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, thou shall not kill, but I say to you, or you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, And sometimes people of the book, we have a habit to leave behind the but I say to you to be able to go back to the eye for an eye because we may have just come across an enemy that we simply cannot or refuse to love. And we have a tendency to pull out that language when we want to. And one of the stories that, we, that almost every Christian has handy, he's got it stuffed right here, got it, got it easy access, is the, is the tale of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's just start with this. Why did he destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Simply because they said his sin was so great. Genesis 18, verse 20, the Lord said, how great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done, what, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, then I will know. It's interesting. He says, I must go down and see. Did he really have to actually go down and see? No, he didn't. He could see everything. I could hear an angel right now saying, why do you have to go down, Lord? You can see it right there, especially you. I may have to have glasses to see it from where we are, but you, you can see it right there. Well, why does he want to go down? Because there's somebody down there that he loves spending time with. And we were told that day that Abraham is just sitting outside his tent and he looks up and guess who he sees walking towards there. This is why he had to go down there is to be able to meet this this one that he has named the father of many nations, the one that was to bless all nations, he said. And he goes and Abraham uh, uh, has Sarah produce a great feast and everything else and they have a great time and they fellowship. No wonder God likes spending time with him. Uh, Abraham's got a way of putting out a spread. Sarah has a way of putting out a spread. And when they get done, they go down, they get done and they get up and they begin to head towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, God says out loud, he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Remember, that was part of the covenant. Every nation of the earth would be blessed in you. Well, guess what? Sodom and Gomorrah are two of those nations. This is an opportunity for the father of many nations to do that which would bless many nations. We don't know what it is yet. But he really steps up to it. See, before this was Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, and that was it. That was all before this. And Abraham comes near and he says this, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you do that? See, one of the things that's nearly fundamental to all of us as believers, and and maybe even uh, uh, in in, in a lot of uh, non-believers too, is that at least, at least, 
A righteous person should not suffer for the wickedness of somebody else. That's fair. We, we understand that. We, we, that is probably a universal principle inside the body and outside the body. Inside voice and outside voice. You shouldn't suffer for someone else's sin. That is a fundamental uh, fairness, if you will. So Abraham pours it on. Suppose there are 50 righteous. Will you forgive it? For the 50 righteous? And God says, far be it from me to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. The Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll forgive the whole place for their sake. Suppose five, and Abraham keeps going. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. I will not destroy it if I find 45. Suppose 40. He says, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Suppose 20. For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Suppose 10. For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And that's where Abraham stops. I don't know why. Yes, I do. I know why. That's as far as he thought he could go. That's, that's so much farther than the kingdom of the world it will go. And, and uh, so I, I, I think I better quit while I'm ahead. I, I think that that's, that's what I need. But, but he really didn't say what he really wanted to say is, is what I'll get at in a second. But one thing that I want you to notice is that during this plea, the minutes that he is bargaining God down, the minutes that he is bringing down, I want to ask you this question. Did Sodom and Gomorrah's sin change during this exchange? Did all of a sudden they have fewer sinners there, more righteous people there in the, in the matter of this? Did the severity or the outcry of the sin change? The answer is no. The only thing that changed is Abraham's plea. See, Abraham's title as father of many nations, Abraham as our father of righteousness by faith, He loved Sodom and Gomorrah as much as he could. He got it down to 10. That's as far as he could go. That is so much better than the kingdom of the world. And he thinks that he's done what a father of all nations who's supposed to bless all nations would do. He did as much as he thought that the rules would allow. The kingdom of the world rules says, what's fair is fair, you get what you deserve. But notice, Sodom and Gomorrah won't get what they deserve if he can find just 10. So even when the church, even when when believers today say that yes, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, and we'll talk about that uh, in the coming week, when the plea of righteous, just one please, but, but for some reason this sin, whatever this sin is, Sodom and Gomorrah, nah. That's gonna come down to a human kingdom of the world bargaining. Because this one, by the way, we really don't know Uh, at least from reading this. We think we we know what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, and that's for another time. But one son of man to plea on behalf of a whole people, does it change the sin? No, it doesn't. It never has. 
See, one thing that we don't seem to notice is that he isn't saying he will extract the righteous and destroy the evil. He's saying he'll spare the entire cities. Abraham doesn't even question that. He doesn't even come back at him and say that. He knew God well enough that he wouldn't sweep the righteous away with the wicked, but has he learned a little bit more about God revealing himself a little bit more? By the way, that's what this entire encounter was all about. Shall I hide from Abraham? The whole encounter was to give the father of nations a further revelation of the God that has called him and asked him for his faith. We're willing to concede that someone being condemned for someone else's sin is not just right in this kingdom or in the kingdom to come. But let me ask you, what if Abraham had gone all the way down to where he really wanted to go? He really wanted to go down to one. He wants to save his nephew Lot. He's always loved his nephew Lot. That's where he really wanted to go, but he didn't think that he could. What if he did? Did God give you any indication as he went from 50 all the way down to 10 that he wouldn't be willing to go all the way down to one? All Abraham had to do was ask. And then to go one step further, forget Lot too. What if Abraham had just asked God to spare them? See, again, if we all agree that someone else shouldn't suffer some, for somebody's sins, but why should we question when somebody wants or when somebody gets a righteous reward that they didn't deserve? Why not? Why shouldn't God be allowed to do what he wants to do with what is his? I believe he wanted to give Sodom and Gomorrah Salvation. I believe he wanted to give them redemption. I believe he wanted to spare them. He was revealing himself to Abraham to show him that. And in turn, we get to see it. How do I know? Because Sodom and Gomorrah's sin did not lessen during this encounter. It didn't lessen. When God gets there, the outcry is everything that he heard that it was. So if Abraham had just asked God to pardon them, wouldn't he? It doesn't make sense to go from 50 to one. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't God make even less sense to go down and say, if you ask, I'll give it to you. I know that he's like this because uh, with a, another patriarch that he comes across, he reveals himself even more and the story gets even more like this. In Exodus 32, Mo- Moses comes down from the mountain to Israel worshiping the golden calf. And we know what happened. Chaos ensues. Uh, A a word goes out. Moses said, everybody who's on God's side, come over here. Everybody who's not, stay over there. And the people that stayed over there, he orders the the Levites, the ones who will actually be the priests, okay, that will use these swords that they're about to use. They're going to use them for something different, for actual sacrifices. He tells them to go over there and start killing and they do, they go over and they start killing and we're told that 3,000 men in, in this side, in the, in the idolater's camp, 3,000 men die and they're all fathers, sons, and brothers. Why? Because somebody's gotta pay for this, it's obvious. In order for this to be fair, somebody has to pay for this blatant, naked idolatry. 
And we get to the end of the narrative and they're standing there ankle deep in blood and everybody is feeling their guilt and their shame. Uh, the, the fire of the smelter that made the golden calf is still burning right over there. It's all in front of them. It's all apparent. And Moses says to the sons of Levi in Exodus 32, he says, today you've ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or a brother. So you have brought a blessing on yourselves that day. Today you've ordained yourself. Today you were willing to use your sword in order to serve the Lord. So now you'll be able to be priests. But I got a feeling that that's not how they feel. I got a feeling that that's not how anybody feels. And I don't think that that's why Moses said what he said. What I hear is this. What I hear is, so today, at the cost of a son or a brother, the death, the destruction, the shame, the guilt, you're standing there in your brother and father and son's blood up to your ankles. You're soaked in it. Do you feel blessed? Have you brought a blessing on yourselves today? See, the idea of a life for a life, the idea of one person paying for just one person's sin, that didn't even happen here. Only 3,000 died for the idolatry of the entire camp. The people that are on this side are just as guilty as the people that were on that side. And they know that it isn't right. And Moses says, look, it's a mess, isn't it? It's an absolute mess. And the way that you feel right now, there's nothing you can do about it. There is nothing we can do about it. This was our solution. So they go to bed with that on their minds. Next day, it says, Moses wakes up and he says, you've sinned a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Wow. He's gonna go up and do something crazy. And what is it? He's gonna ask. He's saying, what else do we have? This didn't work. What else do we have? I'll go back up. He trusts that they all know that nothing has been atoned for for this great sin. The sin's still there. The guilt is still there. They all know it. But maybe I can do something about it, he says. How? Well, it says Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin, but they've made for themselves gods of gold. But if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. He asks And by the way, he says this. He he says, if you won't do it, then just blot me out of the book. Because you called me out. This is is me uh, saying this. But you have called me out to prove to the Egyptians that you were a different God. But this doesn't seem any different. If you won't forgive them the way that you forgave me. See, Moses stands before him, a forgiven murderer, and he knows it. Moses was raised uh, by Hebrew parents, yet he, he, he worshiped the gods of Egypt. He became a priest. He nearly was Pharaoh. He knows. He's a forgiven murderer. If you will not forgive them the way that you forgave me, then just blot me out. I don't, I don't want to live here. I don't want to be here. You were our only hope. So I want you to notice that Abraham, that Moses, 
Men that, that allowed God to walk and to talk with them, to have a face-to-face relationship. They're the only ones who think that atonement can happen, that being made at one with God again, being given righteousness as a gift, even though we don't deserve it, those men are the only ones in the midst of the entire world of sinners that think that they can just ask. See, he knows a little bit more about this God on Sinai and the kingdom that he brought into his presence. And just on the outside chance that Moses thinks that maybe being blotted out or maybe being one righteous person amongst the many could buy Israel's atonement, God says, uh, no. Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, who's ever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moses said, well, blot me out too. See, because Moses knows that he doesn't belong among the righteous either. And yes, there was a plague when he came back down, but it still left people alive. If if what uh, was to take place in order to make one to truly be fair, then each person would be blotted out for their own sin. And here you've got probably two-thirds of the population who are still alive, who all were worshiping the golden calf. It's a real-life illustration, told us. It's a real life illustration of something that Paul would say much later, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he says, go on. I'll forgive them and I'll prove it. Go to the land of flowing of milk and honey. See, that was his promise. He was gonna deliver them out. They're getting what he was promised. Go to the land flowing with milk and honey. But he says this, he goes, but I won't go up among you or I would consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. I think it's hilarious because I hear him the same way that my dad used to talk to us on a vacation across the country. Don't make me stop this car because I swear if I stop this car, I swear if I have to spend one minute with you guys again being like this, I will kill you. I won't go because you surely would make me consume you. See, that'd be good enough for me. I'd be good. In fact, I'm not really that keen with you being in my face anyway. I don't know how Moses does it, but let's go, Moses. Moses, though, he can't do it. We're in chapter 33, verse 11. The Lord, it it says that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And then he would return to the camp, it says. Moses used to go back and forth. He He used to spend time with God there in the tent, face to face, communicating face to face. And then he would go to the camp. He was their son of man, if you will. Face to face, back and forth, bringing the good news. And Moses says to the Lord, see, you said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. He already told him that he would let an angel go before him. Moses says, I don't know this angel. I know you. You're the one that said you would be with me. You promised me that you would be with me. I don't know who this angel is. You've said, I know you by name. And you also have found favor in my sight. If I have found favor, he says, show me your ways that I may know you and find favor in your sight. And then consider too that this nation is your people. That face-to-face relationship actually calls God out to say, look, you promised me that you would be with me. God said, no, you'll get an angel. Moses says, no, you lead us. 
This nation is your people. See, in the kingdom, if he was a king in the kingdom of the world, he'd say, are you crazy after what they've done? You want me to lead people who openly rebelled and wanted another God so much that they made one and they would rather worship the made one than worshiping me? Don't you know the meaning of the word fair? See, a king of this world would. But the kingdom of heaven says, okay, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He's going to be with them, but notice, he's not going to remind them. He's not going to tor- torment them, because that's, the, that's what the other gods would do. Other gods might find a way to be able to forgive you for worshiping someone else, but they'll, they'll torment you in the process. God says, I'll give you rest. And yeah, it's not believable. It's simply unbelievable that that is there, so much so that Moses doesn't quite believe it either because he immediately says, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that we found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people from every people on the face of the earth. It's almost so unbelievable, he didn't hear God say it. He didn't hear God say, I will go with you. The outdoor voice, the economy of the kingdom. You asked, okay, I'll do it. Moses then asked to ask again. And in verse 17, the Lord finally says to Moses, I'll do the very thing you've asked, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses, didn't you hear me the first time? See, walking and talking with God leads to a feeling for the sinner leads to a feeling for the idolater at the foot of Sinai. It leads to the feeling of the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah. It leads to compassion for them. It leads, as our vineyard owner does, to the feeling for the workers. He loves all of them, and he wants to show them how much he does. And the only people that have a problem with that are the ones that think that they've earned that love. They've earned it by their scorching heat working in the field or by working longer than someone else. And we're quick to point out that somebody shouldn't be condemned with someone else's sin. But if so, why then can't we buy into the fact that he would actually give somebody else righteousness? If while we were enemies, Romans 5 says, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. He died for us while we were enemies. If he was willing to die for us that we were enemies, now that we're no longer his enemy, how much more is he willing to do for us? He's willing to reconcile us beyond our sin, in spite of our sin. He's willing to welcome us into the vineyard regardless of what the kingdom says about our works, of what the kingdom of the world says about our works, no matter what it was. It isn't about our sin. If it wasn't about our sin, then it can't be about our work either. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me Or are you envious because I am generous? The word that he used that they translate in uh, in the New Revised Standard as envious, you may see being translated as evil because that's what the Greek word says. 
Is your eye evil because I am generous? And to me, that makes a statement about envy because that is a current testament way of the former testament's command against coveting. Thou shall not covet. Thou shall not be envious. Are you envious because I am generous? The parable's not about the amount of hours or, or work or born and raised in the church versus adult converts or an entire uh, uh, a lifetime of service versus a deathbed confession. It's not about any of that. It's about the workers all getting what they don't deserve from a generous vineyard owner, a gracious and generous king who chooses to give everybody the same if they simply would just believe. And remember this too. If we don't hear him through this outdoor voice, if we don't come to the conclusions that the parable is getting us to come to and not to write it off because it gets too uncomfortable or to say that it's too simplistic, the gospel can't be that easy, it can't be that simple. When actually that's the point of the parable, that is the point of the outdoor voice, to make it as plain, to take down as many barriers as, as, as possible. And by the way, he takes down all the barriers. He makes sure, he sends out barrier taker downers before the gospel goes out. Ask John the Baptist, ask Isaiah, make way for the righteousness of the Lord. If we don't hear him through this outdoor voice, then we won't be carrying any good news at all to the outside and truly offer them the kingdom. And anyone who doesn't hear and use the outdoor voice doesn't enter. And in doing so, they block others from going in. Jesus said that about them. He said, you guys won't even enter the kingdom. You won't enter. And in, 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 in not entering, the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter before you. But you stand outside, he says. And you, in not entering, you will not let others go in. You block others from going in. So we hear his voice so many years later in, in Romans with Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would, why would he say immediately, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Because he's, what he said is it's the power of God for salvation to everyone. And as Saul, he did not believe that. As a 12-hour worker, he did not believe that. He believed that, that the Jew came first and everyone else came second, but there was something special. There was more than a daily wage waiting for the 12-hour worker. There was more than a daily wage waiting for Saul. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Yes, the Jews heard it first, but also the Gentiles, also the Greeks, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous one will live by faith. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Faith flips the economic schedule. Faith flips the wages in the scales. Faith flips the economy of the kingdom of the world and is traded for the economy of the kingdom of heaven. And we hear it so clearly in the outside voice and the parables that Jesus speaks. The kingdom of heaven's economy is no trickle-down economy. It's no uh, persevering type of economy. It doesn't trickle, it doesn't do anything. It's all or nothing. 
It's all him doing what he wants with what he has. And he chooses to give it to anybody who would have faith. And the faith gives us the ears to hear the outdoor voice. Thank you all very much.